The Wrecking Crew. The show that never learns not to love. I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I'm your host. I am a musician and songwriter and movie writer and all-around music lover and lover of weird shit. And I am joined, as always, every week by my lovely co-host, whose name is... Lindsay Tucker. Hello. I'm a journalist. I am also a music lover, a former music writer. And I like to think of myself as a professional researcher. Oh, fabulous. Fabulous, <laughs> Lindsay. So yeah. tell us a little bit about this show, other than never learning not to love. Um, this is a show where we tell you all of the things you never knew about your favorite songs. How they were written, what they're about, what do the lyrics mean. Yep. Perfect. Anything I'm missing? Um cultural i i like to i like to deal with like cultural implications right right and weird sure. weird connections and this one is a doozy Ooh. um so i i was texting you all week saying that this episode has everything so much so that it might be two episodes right and it and it kind of all circ- circles around a theme um and and so a real a, a, a warning ahead of time before we get into the show we're going to discuss some things of, of an extremely graphic nature. And so if you are, you know, if you don't like that stuff, if you're, if you're a little skittish or maybe don't listen in front of kids, we like say fuck a lot. So don't listen in front of kids anyway. Um, but yeah, so this is your, this is your content. Trigger warning. warning? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's some, there's some fucked up shit happens in this week, this week's episode. Well, I asked you if it had killer clowns and you said yes. Uh, it, Is that it, a doesn't, lie? it doesn't not have killer clowns in it. <laughs> okay. Um, so Lindsay, today we are going to be talking about a Beach Boys song called Never Learn Not to Love. Which I don't know if I know it. Okay, great. So what is your, ex- you have, what is your experience with the song? You said none. What is your experience with the Beach Boys? What do you know about the Beach Boys? Um, I saw them when I was in Boston, um, just for like shits. My friend was coming to visit and she wanted to go because it was at the um, Bank of America Pavilion. There's nothing else really going on that weekend. So we went. Um, I, you know, there's the one song that's in Love Actually. Yes. (laughs) God only knows. God only knows. Without you. Yep, sure. And then when I was a little kid, my sister and I like made up this dance to Kokomo and then my dad would make us sing it to all his friends. Like when they would come over, he would be like, do the Kokomo dance. Yeah. I know you don't like that. (laughs) I've told you that one before. (laughs) No, no. So there's going to be a whole episode on Kokomo. So this is, this is part one of a beach boys two parter, uh, where we will definitely be addressing Kokomo and, we just need, I just need you to start mentally preparing yourself for okay. that to be really okay. upsetting for you. Oh, okay. great. Okay. <laughs> like, like super not good. Okay, great. That's, that's a little, that's a little hint. But today we're talking about never learn not to love. Is that basically all you know about the, the, the ye old beach, beachy guys? I mean, I get, yeah, they're like 
kind of invented surf rock, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. And they ride their surfboards to work. Yep, nailed it. And they wished all girls could be California girls. Yeah, because the boobs in California are the greatest boobs of all. That's Did from, they say that? That's from Kimmy Schmidt. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, so let's take a listen to the song to, okay. to, to refresh your memory if you've ever heard it. So, what's up? What do you think the song's about? I can barely hear the lyrics. Um, he's her kind of guy and <laughs> coming closer. Yep. Okay. So, <laughs> cease to resist. Mm-hmm. Come on. Say you love me. Give up your world. Come on and be with me. I'm your kind. I'm your kind. Come on, girl. Ooh, I love you, pretty girl. This is like very rapey. Mm hmm. My life is yours. You can have my world. I'm your kind. Never had a lesson I've ever learned. I know I could never learn not to love you. Come in now closer. Submission is a gift. Give it your lover. Love and understanding is for one another. I'm your kind. I like that you just got creepier. Your voice got creepier and creepier (laughs) as you read that. So... This, you know, I like to state the theme up front so, so that people know what they're getting into. So this is all about jealousy and lust, this, this week's episode, um, and obsession, different obsessions. So to understand this song, this song is credited to Dennis Wilson. So there are three Wilsons in the Beach Boys. There's Brian Wilson, Carl Wilson, and Dennis Wilson. They're brothers. They formed in 1961 in hawthorne california they had a rough childhood and they were in the band with mike love who was their cousin 
and this dude Al Jardine, who is just like their classmate, like their their friend. What was wrong with their childhood? You're gonna find out. Okay. So only Dennis surfed. Dennis is the surfed. one who okay. surfed. Yeah. So he, so this the thing about them doing riding surfboards to school or whatever is is not true. The ocean actually scared Brian. Brian Wilson was like the well we'll talk about it. but the ocean scared brian uh, okay. but they created songs that highlighted the idyllic life in california including you know little deuce coop surfing usa etc etc i wish they all could be california girls There's well so- it's been building up inside of me for mm-hmm. i don't mm-hmm. know how long. that's a good one um yep sure <laughs> Do you know the name of that Don't song? Don't worry, baby. That's, I think so. <laughs> um, so their songs were usually composed, produced, and arranged by Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson was like the creative genius behind the band. Okay. And Mike Love often provided lyrics along with some other people that we're going to talk about. So the early Beach Boys songs focused on fun in the sun and blah, blah, blah. But there's a lot of sources for this week's episode but there's biography.com smithsonian.com abc and nbc news so many though the early beach boy songs focus on fun in the sun the wilson brothers had actually endured a horror-filled childhood oh god their father murray wilson uh was physically verbally and psychologically abusive he'd even take quote he'd even take out his glass eye and have a boy look at the empty socket no 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 we're like five minutes in i'm about to throw up (laughs) uh brian wilson was deaf in one ear so that could account for why the backing vocals are so loud um because he was like the arranger and producer of everything like he's the genius behind it so like i don't know maybe and that may have been caused by his father like his father may have hit them and so Murray was initially the band's manager, and he put a lot of pressure on them to repeat their su- the the initial success that they. How had old found. were they when they got their start? They're all slightly different ages because they're brothers. Obviously, you know? they're not twin triplets. They're not twin triplets. Um, <laughs> so, but so let's let's do this through Brian Wilson's eyes for a minute. So Brian Wilson was born in forty two, and their breakout success was in. 61 so they were 19 around dennis wilson was born in 44 so he was a little younger and so he was 17 okay that explains more why their dad was their manager yeah 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 brian once said of his father he scared me so much that i actually got scared into making good records but brian became frustrated enough to fire his father as manager in 1964 he, he like he had this kind of pressure to succeed instilled in him and now it was like doubly so because he had fired the guy that was like i'm the only reason that you're successful so now now it's like the dewey cox thing where he's like got to be doubly successful there's a great movie by the way called love and mercy about the early beach boys days you watched it i did there, it's about all of the beach boys days but the early stuff is the good stuff um and this led to his first nervous breakdown I was run down, quote, I was run down mentally and emotionally because I was running around jumping on jets from one city to another, one night stands, also producing, writing, arranging, singing, planning, teaching to the point where I had no peace of mind and no chance to actually sit down to think or even rest. 
Brian explained. The rubber band had stretched as far as it would go. And so he would have panic attacks. He had a lot of phobias. He had a fear of flying. He had a fear of the ocean. He was like a sensitive dude who was a musical genius who like was pushed beyond his breaking point. Okay. Brian stopped touring due to panic attacks. What? In 1964, late 64, early 65. Okay. Brian stopped touring due to panic attacks, and this dude, Bruce Johnson, was brought in to the group at that point to sing Brian's parts. So we are starting to see, like, the mitosis of the Beach Boys now into two separate entities. Brian and his creative genius, and then the touring band who would sing Brian's songs. Mm. He continued to create hit songs like Help Me Rhonda, And his talent was such that his eccentricities, such as putting a sandbox around his piano and a tent in his den to have meetings and having meetings in an empty pool, everyone worked around it because he's a genius, right? So, like, why not be fucking weird about it? What was the um, idea behind the sandbox? Uh, That's a good question. If I'm to guess, it's either like a childhood thing or like a surf thing, right? We're on the beach. We're in the sand. He's like trying to make himself, you know, whatever. So Brian is still like writing, producing, what have you. Is he recording the like? Is he on the recordings? And then they just have this other guy. Uh, yeah, on I, what a lovely question. So yes, with an okay. asterisk. Brian wanted to. So this is in '65. Brian wanted to stretch his musical abilities with the next Beach Boys album, which is called Pet Sounds. That's the one that everyone is like, "Oh my god, Pet Sounds." Mike Love thought that the Beach Boys should stick to songs about surfing to like because it matched their track record of success, right? Yeah. And Pet Sounds was released in 1966, but Brian, his vision, the, the album wasn't a success initially. Now it's heralded as like one of the greatest rock and roll records of all time and the beat that inspired the Beatles to get weird with their stuff. But at the time, they're like, what the fuck is this? Like, every uh, commercially, it was like, uh, what is this? Mm-hmm. And Brian was devastated because, you know, he was wrong. And Murray was right. And Mike Love was right. And Brian was wrong. And, and, and his psyche was beginning to crack more. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, indeed. This is, by the way, not the guy who wrote the song that we're talking about. Okay. So the next album that Brian wanted to do was called Smile. This is like a famous, famous disaster of an album. Ooh. Because the rest of the band did not want to do this. They wanted to make a commercially successful pop record, specifically Mike Love. So the big fission between the group is between Mike Love, who's their cousin, and Brian Wilson, to like of which direction that the Beach Boys wanted to go to. Incidentally, Mike Love owns the name The Beach Boys now, I think. And so the band that you saw was Mike Love's band, not Brian Wilson's band. So, quote, Mike Love, I wanted I admit to wanting to make a commercially successful pop record, so I might have complained about some of the lyrics on Smile, calling them acid alliteration. Though, Good Vibrations was a, a, a track intended for Smile, and they released it as a single before the record was done, because, spoilers, the record was never completed. And it reached number one in 1966. Yeah. So, you know, but Brian ended up abandoning the record because he went, you know, crazy cuckoo banana pants 
<laughs> according according to some reports, he abandoned the record because Mike Love was so down on it. And Brian also said, quote, we were taking a lot of psychedelic drugs, like the Beatles mm-hmm. and the Rolling Stones. So it got us very into the music to the point where we got lost in it. We said that we better shelve this because it's getting too heavy. So I, w- I would like you to reiterate your question about Brian on the records. So you asked, you know, the band is starting to split, but is Brian or is that other motherfucker singing on the record? Right. 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 That's what so, I want to know. So actually, the other thing, an other thing happened. The Smile Sessions used a group of session musicians and not the rest of the Beach Boys. What? <laughs> yes. And so they're called they're called the Wrecking Crew. And just like Muscle Shoals, like the, they're kind, it has a kind of a revolving door of members. But the Wrecking Crew, there's a great documentary uh, about the Wrecking Crew. And significant members are Hal Blaine. Not to be confused with World Class Wrecking Crew. Correct. Hal Blaine, <laughs> Carol Kay, who is one of the few woman musicians in that entire era, and guitarist Tommy Tedesco. And so the wrecking Carol crew, King? Carol Kay. Mm. K-A-Y-E. Mm. I make the same mistake all the time. Um, <laughs> and so the wrecking crew played on or were the backing band for a, a crazy list of songs. So I'm going to run through them super fast. Okay. He's a Rebel by the Crystals, Surf City by Jan and Dean, I Get Around by the Beach Boys, Everyone Loves Somebody by Dean Martin, You've Lost That Love and Feelin', Help Me Rhonda, Mr. Tambourine Man, the, bir- the Birds version, not the Bob Dylan version, This Diamond Ring by Gary Lewis and the Playboys, Eve of Destruction by Barry Maguire, I Got You Babe, My Love by Teclu- Petula Clark, Good Vibrations, the Poor Side of Town by Johnny Rivers, Monday Monday by the Mamas and the Papas, You're My Soul and Inspiration by the Righteous Brothers, Strangers in the Night, These Boots Are Made for Walking, Something Stupid Jesus. by Frank and Nancy Sinatra, Mrs. Robinson, Let the Sun Shine In, you know, the Age of Aquarius song, Dizzy by Tommy Rowe, Close to You by the Carpenters, Cracklin' Rosie by Neil Diamond, I Think I Love You by the Partridge Family, Bridge Over Troubled Waters, Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves by Cher, Indian Reservation by the Raiders, Half Breed by Cher, the Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia, Rhinestone Cowboy by Glenn Campbell, who was a member of the Wrecking Crew himself, and Love Will Keep Us Together by Captain Tennille. And that's just the number one hits. Oh, my God. 31 number one hits. In, um, and so some of the other hits are Be My Baby, MacArthur Park, Rainy Days and Mondays, Yesterday Once More, Do Ron Ron Ron. So it's, you, I could just list Wrecking Crew songs forever. Wow. Yeah, crazy. So, zippity doo dah. Um, no. Yeah. <laughs> by Bob B. Socks and the Blue Jeans. Um, you mean it's not by Jiminy Cricket? Wait, who sings zippity doo dah? It's, it's from Song of the South, which is that ultra racist Disney movie that has been pulled from the shelves. Okay. I, you know what? I had like a <laughs> compilation VHS. It's all sure coming back did. to me now. And it had all these Disney songs, but it was just the song from the movie. So it had yeah. like Mary Poppins with the penguins mm-hmm. and then it would go to Zippity Doodah. And I've, I've never seen that movie that you're, that you just said song mm-hmm. of the South. Matt Reuter has it on VHS, which is probably worth a lot of money. Actually. <laughs> Wait, can I go borrow it? Can I go get it? Maybe I'll ask him. Okay. <laughs> so tell him to bring it to Billy's. I will just drop it off. Uh, the album was shelved and the group released 
a downscaled version. So like it was just like adding and adding and adding and retooling and reimagining. And so the group released a downscaled version called Smiley Smile in September of 67. Smiley and, Smile? Mm-hmm. So that's a little scary. Yeah. Well, I'm already a little scared. Well, keep going. Here we go. <laughs> um, and over the next four decades, like, tr- like smile tracks like trickled out and eventually in 2004 i think they released like a reconstructed version of smile of of like what brian wilson intended in when 2004 i think oh wow okay yeah um there's also a song called heroes and villains which is on another beach boys record which is called holland but the wrecking so the important thing is that there are now there now exists two bands called the beach boys the one that is writing and recording and producing the music and then the band that is singing the songs live and which is the real beach boys it's the ship of theseus all over again right so uh the album was produced and almost entirely composed by brian wilson and they had a guest he had a guest lyricist and arranger named Van Dyke Parks, who was like a huge poet at the time. And the project was supposed to be a repost to the British sensibilities that had dominated pop music of the era. So it was supposed to be like truly American. Mm. Wilson said that Smile was, quote, a teenage symphony to God. Okay. What is a teenage symphony Dude, to God? I do not even know. But this should, <laughs> this should give you a sense of where Brian Wilson's mental state is. Sure. Right? Sure, sure. Yeah. It was planned to feature word paintings, tape manipulation, elaborate vocal arrangements, which he was already known for, experimental with, experiment with acoustics, comic interludes, Influences drawn from psychedelics, pre-rock and roll, pop, doo-wop, jazz, ragtime, classical, American history, poetry, cartoons, and mysticism. In preparation for the album's writing and recording, Brian Wilson purchased about $2,000 worth of marijuana and hash, which is in 2020 dollars equivalent to $16,000. Whoa. That's a lot of weed. Yep. He erected a 30,000, parentheses, 240,000, hot boxing tent, which was formerly his dining room. For smoking in? Yeah. It was for hot boxing. He did the sandbox. He developed a fixation with health and fitness. He replaced his living room furniture with gym mats. Yeah, he was, it was a bad scene. It was, quote, a playpen for irresponsible people. The sandbox remained in Wilson's home until April of 1967. So there were legal entanglements with Capitol Records, and it turns out that Wilson had schizoaffective disorder. That's not a laughing matter. It's not. You're right. But his mental health yo-yoed, and he started hearing voices after taking LSD. He began to behave more erratically in the 1970s. He took he was like bedridden, and in 1967 he was barely functioning. Quote, meals happened without me, he said. Kids went to school and came back, and I might still be in a bathrobe up in the bedroom or downstairs sitting at the piano, still in the bathrobe. So he had kids. Yeah. Okay. So he had a wife named Marilyn, and Marilyn arranged for him to see a psychologist named Dr. Eugene Landy, who helped him kind of return to the studio in 1976. He's like making a comeback. And he, so Landy wanted to like, 
be Brian Wilson's manager for some reason and re- receive income from the Beach Boys. Okay, that's a conflict of interest. Uh-huh. And so they fired him. Yet, but after after they fired him, Brian lost control of his life and he and Marilyn divorced. He stopped bathing. His drug use climbed. Um he got he got super heavy and the Beach Boys finally fired Brian Wilson in 1982 and they made seeing Eugene Landy a requirement if he wanted to return so Landy's back in 83 and Landy sees his opportunity and cuts Brian Wilson off from his family and friends and fellow band members and surveilled him around the clock at one point Eugene Landy lived in Brian's house while what? he yeah He's and like- while Brian was kept in a rental house oh brian wasn't even there he wasn't even there uh landy was having like a howard hughes spiraling meltdown somewhere else 100 (laughs) percent. i mean this is all a howard hughes spiraling meltdown to to a t except for landy is making money off of it so landy helped brian lose weight and get off drugs but the brian was more often more sedated and over medicated than when he was just like using drugs recreationally and when Brian went into the studio, Landy claimed co-writing credit for all the songs. So he became... So it's a conservatorship. Yeah. He became the, the, the business director of all of Brian's stuff, which, as you mentioned, is a conflict of interest. Okay. So. This is weird. It's weird how this isn't really public knowledge. Like, like everyone has a free Britney t-shirt right now, but what about free Britney? Well, so uh, so if you watch the the movie, it's called Love and Mercy. You can see the kind of the struggle that Brian has ultimately against Landy, and and he eventually kicked him out. Remember during our NWA episode when I said if Paul Giamatti is managing your music career, you're got you're about to get fucked. Mm-hmm. Guess who plays Eugene Landy in the movie? Paul Giamatti. PG baby. so that's not who we're talking about that's not who has writing credit for this song though okay who who has writing credit for the song is dennis wilson brian wilson's younger brother the surfer the 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 only one who actually surfed yeah so quote he was the wild one he could never get enough of anything drugs women or booze but in the end he had nothing so Dennis had nothing. Dennis. Yeah. It's a tragic family. It's a super tragic family. And it all it's all about jealousy, right? And when so, you think of Beach Boys, you're like these little happy boppers. Fun in the sun. But, yeah. Yeah. Till your daddy took your surfboard away. And he fucking beat you over the head with it, apparently. Oh my god. So we're gonna start with Dennis Wilson's death, which happened in 1983. It was almost midnight, Christmas Day, 1983. Dennis Wilson's head was a bloody mess. He was 39 at the time. He had been beaten up by a male friend of his estranged wife, who was 19. Her name was Holy Sh- crap. Shauna Love Wilson. At uh, a hotel called the Santa Monica Bay Inn, Wilson had checked himself out of a detox unit of a hospital and had been drinking in the area when he ran into his ex-wife, his estranged wife's friend. He picked a fight with the friend, and he lost the fight. Shit. Several hours later, he was drunk, was puffing on a cigarette, and he was vowing revenge outside of St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica. And he was saying, I just want to go down there and kick his ass. 
down down to back to the inn, I suppose, to kick the guy's ass who just put him in the hospital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Call the cops, close the place, the Santa Monica Bay Inn, bust everyone. He was telling this to Steve Goldberg, who's a, a, the guy who brought him down to the hospital. So inside the hospital, this dude, Chris Clark, who was another friend, was on the phone trying to convince a doctor to readmit Dennis as an alcoholic to the detox unit. Okay. And the doctor didn't want to do it. Why? Quote, he's just too much trouble. And the friend says, he may die, you know. And the doctor said, he may have to. Oh, shit. And then three days later, he was dead. Is there a lawsuit about this? No. His body was pulled out of the cold, murky water of Marina Del Rey. What? Yes. Where we stayed on the beach and we thought everything was fine. Yeah. His his toxicology level was 0.26, which is pretty high. So Dennis is credited for writing the song, but it turns out he stole the song. He stole it from who? Well, take a guess. The Bahaman? Yeah, it's actually from the Bahaman. <laughs> so who would you think? So he didn't steal the song from Brian, right? Which would be like the first guess. He didn't steal the song from anyone in the Wrecking Crew, but he stole it from a different source. So we're going to... Brian's replacement. No, we're going to flash back 15 years to the summer of 1968. Okay. So Dennis Wilson is driving down Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, and he picked up two women who were hitchhiking. Because this is a thing that happened back then. And also, according to ABC, Dennis Wilson, quote, Dennis Wilson liked women kind of indiscriminately. Okay. He had split from his wife and was living in a former hunting lodge on Sunset Boulevard. He took the two women back there and headed to the studio to record something. When he returned, he was pulling into the driveway. He saw the lights inside of like the guest house. He like he saw them on, and that's not where he left the women. And so this are they his wards? Did he put them in a room with no windows? Well, no. He so there's like a guest house and a and a main house. So he left okay. the women in the main house to like party and he'll come back okay. and potentially have sex with them. But the guest house lights were on, and that's weird. I mean, they could have gone to the guest house. In fact, they did. Wilson didn't recognize the guy that was with them, though. He was small. He had long, dark hair and a scruffy beard. Sonny Bono. He walked out of the back door toward him. Un- and unnerved by the stranger, Wilson asked him if he was going to hurt him. Do I look like I'm going to hurt you? The man responded. And then the man dropped to his knees and kissed Dennis Wilson's feet. Okay. That's how Dennis Wilson met Charles Manson. No. What do you know about Charles Manson? <laughs> um, Charles Manson is, was a cult leader mm-hmm. who lived on a ranch of some sort mm-hmm. with a bunch of women and brainwashed everyone. And they're all murderers. Yeah. <laughs> so Charles Manson was born in 1934 to a 15-year-old mother. And his early childhood was spent bouncing around between relatives and later in and out of institutions. His mother, Kathleen, gave birth to him when she was 15. His father was a man who left soon afterward. I am a street child. I'm a runaway little girl at 15 years old out of Kentucky named Kathleen Maddox. And she went to Cincinnati, had a guy named Charlie Manson. 
When he's four and a half, his mother and his uncle are sent to prison for a botched attempt at armed robbery. And she went to prison, and I used to visit her in the prison visiting room. The only thing my mother taught me was that everything she said was a lie. And I learned never to believe anyone about anything. So he was like a ward of the state. Okay. And then he was locked up. He, so in, the early tw- in his early 20s, he married twice and fathered a son. He was in and out of jail a lot. Manson was so considered so thoroughly institutionalized by authorities that when he was released in 1967 from a California prison, he asked the warden if he could just stay. Mm-hmm. And inside, when he was inside, he became, a hu- he became a huge fan of the Beatles. And he studied like cult leader tactics and he was like really a, fa- a big fan of like the Scientologists, like what the Scientologists were doing. He like learned a lot from them. Okay. So instead of staying in prison, the warden would not just let him stay because that's weird. That's like not super uncommon though. Like no, people it is have nowhere not. to go. It is, it is not. Three hots and a cot. And, and, he, and he basically was not socialized not i'm not like trying to humanize charles manson but he was basically like not socialized his entire life and combined with like a huge lack of empathy he learned how to manipulate people to get exactly what he wanted so manson went up to berkeley and then san francisco and this was like summer of love mamas and the papas if you're going to san francisco he was a little bit older and so he amassed a following of almost entirely women and he would target kind of upper middle class suburban women who, according to him, had been lied to their whole life about the way of the world. And he was the only one to ever tell them the truth. So this is Leslie Van Houten. This is one of the core members of the Manson family. I seem to want more um, living out of life than what was expected of young girls at that time. Drugs, sex, you know breaking away from the norm. Elizabeth Houghton's father moved out. She lost her way after that. Which is like, once again, not to side with Charles Manson, but like, not, that's probably not incorrect. That's not incorrect, but he's just preying on... Yeah, he's capitalizing on that. ...the unfortunate ways of the world. hmm Yeah, he is, he is like the bug in the system that exposes, that he said was exposing the flaws but he was just doing it for his own gain right and that's what all of these manipulative like quote-unquote leaders do 100 percent. they they start off with a with you know with a platform that people relate to but then they exploit it right and and who knows how much of like who knows whether he's believed anything he's ever said in his entire life you know right 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 um but he didn't set out to be a cult leader no one does really Okay, but if you're reading all these cult leader books... Mm-hmm. Yes, but he wanted to be a musician. Mm. So in 1968, he's, with his like core followers, family members, he moved to L.A. to pursue a career in music, having learned guitar in prison. He was a big fan of the Beatles. And, Why was he in prison again? Um, just like random petty crime all throughout the 50s and 60s when he was young. Okay. Okay. No, no, nothing murder, murdery. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. And kind of, well, we'll talk about it. 
because of the lax social codes of the 60s and LA was like a haven for runaway hippies and he's like very charismatic and he had an ability to kind of tell to read people and to tell people what they wanted to hear he mingled with Hollywood royalty such as such as the drummer for the Beach Boys Dennis Wilson okay but we already knew that one um Candace Bergen Murphy Brown herself <laughs> Terry Melcher who was a music executive he'll come in later he would just like kind of go to parties Terry Melcher was the son of Doris Day at one point the daughter of actress Angela Lansbury was like a hanger on to the family okay so I think you were exaggerating a little when you said Hollywood royalty well Angela Lansbury is an important person <laughs> sure okay sure. I mean he 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 made friends with Dennis and he was at these kind of posh parties, right? He was hobnobbing. Mm-hmm. And through Wilson, Manson met other music industry people and he grew really fixated. He was really fixated on stardom. Like he wanted to be a pop star. And that kind of reflected into exerting more control over his quote unquote family members. I'm just going to refer to them as the family because that's like what mm-hmm. he refer- So. So, according to a biographer and journalist named Jeff Gwynn in the book Manson, The Life and Times of Charles Manson, quote, the wrong man in the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. In Mike Love's book, the, you know, the, the, he, who is currently the leader of the band that calls themselves the Beach Boys, Mike Love recounts how Dennis Wilson, his cousin and former bandmate, had, was like kind of, very generous he would like throw money around and he had an insatiable sexual appetite and was more than happy to open his home to manson and the family members because like they were all fucking each other okay quote from mike love dennis was the perfect mark a famous well-connected entertainer who could help a musical neophyte get discovered dennis lived in a luxurious house on three acres with a swimming pool and plenty of guest rooms guileless about others indifferent about his own possessions dennis was all too happy to allow manson and his girls to move in use his charge cards take his clothes eat his food and even drive his mercedes (laughs) beyond what was spent on the credit cards dennis paid the medical costs for the women who were treated for stds i just got a shiver from my head to my toes like in my core thinking about where i think this is going that this song was written by charles manson and it's so creepy love continues (laughs) okay well i'm very very freaked out right now please go on but his house was ransacked his house was ransacked by who family members yeah by family members just like they would take all the shit furniture clothes guitar stereo equipment gold records they took everything of dennis's that wasn't nailed down okay so and was he like i'm part of this party or was he just like i'm too fucked up to care so good question at what it uh, it depends on who you ask dennis wilson loved having the manson family with him for a while He thought Manson was a great intellect. He nicknamed him the wizard. He was definitely under Charlie's influence at that point in time. Because Charlie could talk such metaphysical mush, Dale Carnegie, the Bible, and homing in on Dennis's insecurities about his own talent, 
Dennis was intimidated by the other Beach Boys. He's low man on the totem pole in the group. Charlie builds him up. You're great. Your music is exceptional. And little did Dennis know that once Charlie got his hooks into you, he didn't let go. He was the perfect target. According to Al Jardine, who is the fifth member of the Beach Boys that we haven't really talked about, Wilson oh, and Manson, Al. it was just irritating because the. Well, here we go. It was just irritating because they were always around and it was Charlie this and Charlie that. And then he had this little thing that Charlie worked out. It was just a melody. A melody that became Never Learn Not to Love. Gross. This is just out there. Mm -hmm. Haunting people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So... After a few months, Wilson had enough of Manson and the family. Beyond what was spent on the credit cards, Dennis paid the STD bills, the house was ransacked. They also totaled his Mercedes. By the end of the summer, Dennis figured he had lost about $100,000 to his roommates, and even for him, that was too much. Oh, my goodness. And according to who... So so this number of $100,000 comes up a bunch of times, and it says that... Some people say that Wilson paid Manson $100,000 to leave. Other people say that Manson just like moved out on his own. And maybe this $100,000 was like the total of the damages that he stole. But it's between one and $200,000, which is like million dollars in today's money. Manson had connections to a number of wealthy and through through Wilson, Manson had access to Terry Melcher, who was a record producer and the son of Doris Day, and Candace Bergen's boyfriend and Angela Lansbury's mom. And Angela Lansbury's mom actually used her Angela Lansbury's credit card to buy the family food and clothing. Wow. So Terry Melcher and Candace Bergen lived at a house at 10050 Cielo Drive. That's the house that eventually would be occupied by Sharon Tate. Shut up! So this is how it happened. According to biographer Peter Carlin, Peter Ames Carlin, Manson wrote all of a song called Cease to Exist, especially for the Beach Boys, specifically for the Beach Boys. Cease to Exist or Resist? Cease to Exist. (laughs) Specifically for the Beach Boys to record. And Stephen Gaines said that Manson reportedly wrote the song to help ease the tension within the group because Brian was going crazy at the time and, you know, every, everyone was kind of going their separate ways. Dennis Wilson has Charlie Manson and some of the Manson family living in his house. He can't get them out. He's scared of them. So possibly he sort of recorded that song to get him off his back. Regardless of why, The Beach Boys cut a Manson tune in September 1968. Band member Mike Love said that no one ever told him that Charles Manson had written the song and everyone was under the impression that Dennis wrote the song. They they never gave Charlie credit. I wasn't told about the origins of the song. As far as I knew, Dennis had written... Never learned 
not to love the Beach Boys. I remember Mike Douglas, and I remember doing a show. I'm your kind, I'm your kind, and I see The squeaky clean Beach Boys are singing a song written by Charles Manson on a Mike Douglas show. never learn not to love you. In light of what happened, boggles the mind. And when it appears on the album, it's credited only to Dennis Wilson. Manson was furious when he found out that Dennis Wilson had not only changed the lyrics, but had listed himself as the sole composer. When Manson goes looking for Wilson afterwards, and at one point leaves a bullet, and tells Wilson that I know where you live, I know where your children are, you know what this means. I gave Dennis Wilson a bullet, didn't I? I gave him a bullet because he, he changed the words to my song. Dennis Wilson... <laughs> was so terrified ultimately of Charlie Manson that he ran from him. With anybody else, Manson would have physically attacked him. But he has to live with it. He has to swallow it. Only because Manson still needed Wilson's best friend, Terry Melcher. Terry Melcher was the son of Doris Day, the famous movie star and singer. Hey, Sarah, Sarah. He was living on Cielo Drive in Benedict Canyon. Terry Melcher is a genius at recognizing how to get marketable hit music. Hey, he would produce the Birds version of the Mr. Tambourine Man. Turn, turn, turn. He'd have over 80 hit singles within a few years. Did you tell us when this song came out? December 2nd, 68. Okay. I have no doubt that Dennis was freaked out, but there's also this weird, like, I feel like maybe he was trying to stick it to Manson somehow, because there's this video of Never Learn Not to Love, and there is Dennis Wilson out front making love to the camera. And, you know, I mean, Dennis Wilson's rarely out front. It's the Beach Boys, he's the drummer, you know? And so it's just so strange to me, knowing the story behind it and then seeing that performance. So, uh, as as a, a couple people had mentioned, Manson's lyrics were a little different, right? The song is called Cease to Exist, and the Beach Boys said Cease to Resist. Um, so, this is Charlie Manson singing Cease to Exist. Pretty girl. Pretty, pretty girl. Oh. Cease to exist Just come and say you love me Give up your world Come on, you can't be I'm your kind Oh, your kind and I can see Walk on, walk on. I love you, pretty girl. So this is what people these days call freak folk. Neil Young, I wouldn't say Neil Young was like a fan of of this of Charles Manson, but in this ABC documentary that I just linked to, he was like, "Oh yeah, this is pretty good." Oh God. To love you. Submission is a gift. Go on, give it to your brother. 
love and understanding is for one another. I'm your kind, I'm your kind, I'm your brother. I never had a lesson I ever learned, but I know we all get our turn, and I love you. Never learned not to love you. Never learn not to love you. Never learn not to love you. In exchange for the publishing rights to cease to exist, Manson received a sum of cash and a motorcycle, which he later gave to the family member, Little Paul Watkins. In 71, he was asked why he didn't credit Manson, and Dennis Wilson said he didn't want that. He wanted money instead. I gave him $100,000 worth of stuff, right? So this is where this, like, is it an extra $100,000? Is it the original $100,000? What is it? So is Dennis Wilson claiming that Manson knew that this was happening? As for as far as we can tell, Manson knew, wrote the song specifically for the Beach Boys. I think expected credit because he wanted to be a star or expected favors in like helping him become a big musician and was furious when he got none of those things and when they changed the lyrics to the song. Right, they, which most of them are the same most of them are the same but they cut the weird pretty girl part and they change cease to exist to cease to resist mm-hmm. which is creepier frankly yeah it is when wilson acquired the song from manson for the most part he abided by manson's original specifications however in an attempt to better accommodate the vocal harmonies wilson reworked the song from like this kind of bluesy thing to like mm-hmm. a like a major key which I think, like, that is that is the biggest affront to, I think, if we're looking from song to song, like, that's the thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Manson threatened Wilson with murder for changing the lyrics. <laughs> and we have this bullet story, right? So Charles Manson brings a bullet, shows it to Dennis. Dennis says, what's this? And Manson says, it's a bullet. Every time you look at it, I want you to think how nice it is that your kids are safe. Jesus! So at this point, is Dennis thinking that Manson is like great, his best friend? No, no, no. This is like their friendship is ending, but they have to. But they have to play nice. Why? Because so Dennis wants to play nice to Manson so that he doesn't get fucking murdered, and Manson isn't going to murder Dennis because he wants Dennis's access to Terry Melcher. Mm -hmm. So because he thinks Melcher is going to get him famous. Yeah. Because Melcher's a record producer. Yeah. So Manson, this is from ABC, quote, Manson never allowed for a minute that he just wasn't good enough. Okay. Manson restrained himself from violence. Dennis Wilson's good friend Terry Melcher was a star producer at the time, and Manson was hopeful that Melcher could secure him a record contract. However, when Melcher, Melcher like reneged on the offer, and Mm -hmm. that, and Manson and his followers declared helter-skelter on not just Melcher, but on the entire (laughs) entertainment industry. Helter-skelter on not just Melcher. Yep. (laughs) Okay. Quote Manson, when you give your word, you make a contract. And what happens when you break that contract? You lose your life. Okay, normal. 
normal things. Super duper normal. Uh, they didn't give him writing credits on that song. And, you know, somebody as megamaniacal as Manson was, you can imagine how angry, to put it lightly, he might be. To calm Charlie down, Wilson sets up a meeting with Hollywood insider Terry Melcher, the son of beloved actress Doris Day and a famous record producer himself. But the meeting doesn't go as planned. Terry Melcher was kind of freaked out by Manson, tried to let him down gently. He ran up against reality in that Charles Manson was Charles Manson. Only had to really take one meeting with this guy to know that this guy is not somebody we should be working with. Tried to let him down easy, right? Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the Manson family. Because people who are super into this type of stuff will be ve- are very eager to point out that Manson actually never killed anybody. He just made everyone else do it. Correct. So okay. in the public's imagination, the Manson girls, as they are known, are almost like as big a personality as Manson himself. There were young women in their late teens, or early 20s, mm-hmm. um, white middle-class women from all over the country. And he used his female followers to lure his m- male followers in. And that's basically exactly what happened with Dennis Wilson. Right. So Manson and the family moved from San Francisco to Spawn Ranch, which is a old movie location. And so they were just like living in old sets. Right. Which we saw in. Once upon a time in Hollywood. Yeah. So Manson forbade members from wearing eyeglasses or carrying money. Why couldn't they wear glasses? I do not fucking know. Sorry, we weren't allowed in the cult. I guess so. All right. Because well, it's we like didn't want to be in anyway. Yeah, right. I think it's we love like carrying cash. OMG, you're seeing the things the way they want you to see them, blah blah blah. Manson follower Diane Lake was just 14 when she met Manson. She oh she detailed long nights of lectures in which Manson instructed others at the ranch to take LSD and they listened to him preach about the past, present, and future of humanity. Some in the family remained loyal to Manson even after he was imprisoned. The family was a group of about a hundred followers, ultimately, and Manson shared hallucinogenic drugs and mushroom LSD and mushrooms. Um, and then he would recreate the crucifixion while on LSD and would talk what? What? with himself How? as Jesus. Yeah. No. I mean, he wouldn't like recreate the whole fucking thing, but he would like he would cast himself as Christ and went did this whole thing of like i'm manson man's son son of man like real dime store psychology bullshit oh my god and manson so within the family there was like a hardcore unit of young girls and they began to believe without question that manson was actually jesus and that he had this prophecy of like a race war which was what helped yeah which is what helter skelter did Helter Skelter was was the name of like the race war. So let's talk about the murder. The murders. On the night of August 8th, 1969, Manson family members Tex Watson, Patricia Krenwinkle, Susan Atkins, and Linda Kasabian drove to Terry Melcher's old house. Mm-hmm. And it was currently being used by 
Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. Roman Polanski was out of town working on a film. Tate was eight months pregnant. And she was she had been made famous for the 1967 film Valley of the Dolls. She was like up and comer. And she was at home with her friend's ex-boyfriend and celebrity hairstylist Jay Sebring. Abigail Fold. Not to be confused with Keith, not, last name. Not Keith, the funky bus driver, <laughs> Jay Sebring. Abigail Folger, who is the heiress to the Folger's coffee fortune. Folger's in your cup. Yeah. And Folger's boyfriend, whose name was Wojtek Frykowski, who's, okay. I guess, Polish. I guess. In 1968, the year before this, Sharon was in a movie with Dean Martin called The Wrecking Crew. Wow. <laughs> The fuck? <laughs> so while Manson himself n- took part in took no part in the actual killings, he directed these four people, Tex, Susan, Patricia, and Linda, to the address and told them to kill everyone. According to one of the family members' statements, the Polanski household had been targeted because it represented the showbiz world that had rejected Manson. But it was Terry Melcher's house. Right. None of them had any connection to the Manson, to Manson or the family, other than being physically in the house occupied by Terry Melcher. And in in the Helter Skelter book the, that the prosecutor wrote, he says a witness for the prosecution described a March nineteen sixty nine day on which Manson came to the house looking for Melcher and found Tate on the porch instead. There is no question that Charles Manson saw Sharon Tate and she saw him. Manson knew that Terry Melcher didn't live there anymore. Right. And he decided to kill everyone inside anyway. Stephen Parent, this is, this, is, this is real sad. Stephen Parent was this teenager. He had been visiting his friend when he, uh, his friend who was the, na- who was the neighbor, he was selling him an alarm clock radio. And as he drove away in the dark, he was spotted by the Manson family members and they shot him and killed him. I think he was like 17 or something, but he was the first victim Mm -hmm. once again, just like wrong place, wrong time. Mm -hmm. Linda Kasabian was horrified by the killing of the boy. And so she stayed outside to like keep watch. She was the getaway driver, but it seemed like she was not a true believer. Like, the rest of them or the truest of believers. So the other three broke in the house. They herded Tate, Frykowski and Folgers and Sebring into the living room, tied them up. Sebring was shot and kicked as he tried to defend Tate during the murder spree. Both Frykowski and Folger managed to escape into the front lawn where they were chased down and stabbed to death. And Tate pleaded for her life. Quote, just let me have my baby and come back and kill me later. And she was stabbed in the stomach by Susan Atkins, who said, quote, look, bitch, I have no mercy for you. You're going to die and you better get used to it. Atkins then used Tate's blood to write the word pig on the front door, but she didn't want to touch the blood with her hand. So she dipped a corner of a towel in to get enough ink. What the hell? That is seriously deranged. Yeah. If you stab someone multiple times in the mm-hmm. stomach, don't you have blood all over you already? But, I mean, probably. 
At the trial, Linda Kasabian described how she saw Frykowski staggering out of the house covered in blood and was horrified, and she told him that she was sorry, but despite his pleas to his attacker to stop, the he was bludgeoned to death and stabbed 28 times. Oh, I'm sorry. Folger was stabbed 28 times. Charlie told them, if you're going to do something, do something witchy. So they wrote pig and helter skelter on the walls to like make it seem satanic right Mm -hmm. and instead of this massacre like making manson happy he just yelled at them for being sloppy okay meaning you know what's the interpretation of sloppy here they made a mess or they were too obvious i think they were too obvious I, i i have a feeling that it was because he lets they let some of them outside okay you know what i mean yeah. So the very next night, the same group of family members, plus Leslie Van Houten, who you saw in that clip, talk about being obsessed or whatever, and Manson himself, they wanted to commit more murders. They drove to the house of this grocery store executive named Lino LaBianca and his wife, Rosemary LaBianca, in Los Feliz, which is where I'm coming to you from today. LaBianca was totally unknown to the Manson family. Some of the members had been at a party in the neighborhood. And according to the prosecutor, the LaBiancas were chosen at random after several hours of driving around an upscale Los Angeles neighborhood. They killed. They picked a house. They just picked a house. They killed the LaBiancas because Charlie knew how to get to their house. Great. So here's the thing, though. There was another murder. So a couple weeks before that, there was another dude killed named Glenn Hinman. And he was a musician, but that was that murder was done in Malibu, which is a different police department than L.A. City. And they didn't share evidence, especially because thanks to Tate's murder and the kind of witchiness of the crime scene and the general consensus of the culture, they blamed Roman Polanski for Tate's murder because it's always the husband. Polanski also directed Rosemary's Baby, so there's like a little satanic panic thing there, and there's also the theory that Polanski was jealous of Tate's relationship with Jay Sebring, who was her ex-boyfriend, and we should mention that Polanski has his own fucking shit where he statutory raped a, well, he rape-raped a young girl by the age of either 13 or 15, depending on who you ask. He raped a child. He raped a child. He, he had like a quote unquote relationship with this child. Of course, the relationship was one sided because a child can't engage in a relationship with an adult. Um, but this girl's mother like offered her up to him. It was a real fucked up thing. And Great. he is now living in France to avoid standing trial for this statutory rape. Um, that happened in the 70s. But, and then Aviv named his band after him? I did name my old band after, well, after a Rolling Stone article okay. with his name in it. Um, okay. But, point being, at this point, Polanski had nothing to do with any felonies that, that, we, we, knew that we knew of. He had nothing <laughs> okay. to do with her murder. Okay. So, ironically, Manson and his family were not arrested for the murders. Great. They were arrested. They were picked up in 1969. This is how it went down. Spawn Ranch is raided by the cops because of car theft. The heat was on them 
when they were living at Spawn Ranch and had just done all those murders, and they were stealing cars and outfitting them as dune buggies with, like, guns Mad Max style for the oncoming race war. Great. This isn't weird at all. No. So you've got Charles Manson and a bunch of early 20s women putting machine guns on dune buggies that they stole, and so they get arrested. Finally. Finally. But for, for stealing cars and vandalism. They raid Spawn Ranch. They arrest him and his family members, but they don't know about that he's connected to the murders at all. And so when they tell him that he's arrested for car theft, he's happy about it and no one can figure out why. But it turns out through a clerical error, the warrant or the arrest or whatever was filed for the wrong date. And so they had to let him go and get a new warrant for his arrest. So that's when he moved out to the Mojave and put gun turrets on his thing. So they re-arrest him in the Mojave. They find him in the Mojave. He was like hiding in a pantry or something. They arrest him and all of the other Manson girls. They put them in jail in, in like a holding cell separately. And they don't know. They still don't know anything that they're connected to the murders at all. And no one's talking to the cops, but one of the Manson girls, Susan Atkins starts bragging about doing the murders in the holding cell to the other inmates. Jesus. And so they overhear her and they're like, excuse me, you did what? You fucking what? And so that's how it all came crumbling down. Wow. So various motives were examined during the course of the trial. The most feasible was that Manson is just crazy. Hold on. I need a backup. I'm sorry. I don't mean to talk over you. It's okay. um, You said that he was happy when he got arrested. He was happy when he got arrested for car theft because they arrested him. Because it wasn't murder. Right. (laughs) And so after Susan Atkins was bragging to the other inmates about doing the murders, they arrested everyone for murder. And Charlie's whole thing was like, I didn't do anything. I'm just crazy Charlie. Whoop, look at me. They listened to me. That's their fault. They they did whatever they wanted to do, and I had no mm. control over them. Mm. So various motivations were examined during the course of the trial. The most feasible was that Manson's pathological ego and sanity and belief in Armageddon were influences that led him to leave behind a trail of destruction. Manson believed that he was the new messiah, and after a nuclear attack, he and his followers would be saved by hiding in a secret world underneath the desert. Right? So Manson's prophetic visions included a belief that a race war would result in the black people taking over the world from the white people. And Manson, along with the family members, would have to mentor the black community as they would lack the experience to run the planet. Jesus fucking Christ. As Manson and the family were to be beneficiaries of the race war, he told his followers that they had to help initiate it. And according to one of the witnesses, this was the primary reason why he murdered the LaBiancas, which like also doesn't make sense. Uh, Manson had taken the wallet because they were Italian because he was racist against Italians. I guess Manson had the wallet of Rosemary LaBianca with the intention that he would deposit it in a section of L.A. where a black person might find it and then use it. And then the murders would be pinned on them. And then later in court, 
Leslie Van Houten, who was just 19 when she took part in the LaBianca killings, alleged that Manson had taken advantage of her vulnerability and dislike for her mother, although she believed, like the other members, that he was a man of vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She also revealed other grisly and macabre acts that were to be perpetrated against the victims, and they had a list of other high-profile Hollywood stars, including... Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, Frank Sinatra, Steve McQueen, and Tom Jones, who were all supposed to be murdered or mutilated in some way. Jesus! When asked why they wanted to kill celebrities, Atkins replied that the Manson family wanted to commit murders that would shock the world and make people take notice. I guess I'm a little bit, I'm just not really seeing the connection between the celebrity murders and this race war that they're trying to start. Me fucking neither, man. Okay. (laughs) The trial began in June of 1970, and lawyer Ronald Hughes was the attorney for Manson and Van Houten. And Ronald Hughes dropped Manson as a client, reportedly because he felt he could convince the jury that Van Housen had been influenced by Manson, right? Who's Van Housen? Leslie Van Houten. Well, because, okay, thank you. You keep changing her name. Sorry, Van Houten. Le- okay. Yeah, so Leslie Van Houten, who's the woman that you saw in the video. Right, call. we saw her talking. Okay, so Ronald she drops- Hughes, yeah, Ronald Hughes drops Manson for Van, and uh, he's representing both of them, and he drops Manson to just represent, just represent her. The- turn against Charlie. Yeah, the move may have cost him his life. Late that year, Hughes went camping and disappeared, and his decomposed body turned up several months later. It is thought that he was a victim of a retaliation killing by the members of the Manson family. He was found crushed beneath a rock. Christ. According to one of the other Manson girls, Charlie had planned out a bunch of weirdo stunts for the women to do during the trial. They shaved their heads, they made weird hand gestures, they sang songs, and they got kicked out almost every single day. Great. So, what was Helter Skelter? In a summer swelter. In a summer swelter. So the prosecutor, whose name is Vincent Bugliosi, another Italian guy, <laughs> he had to put together a motive for the family's killings and implicate Manson. And eventually landed on Manson's obsession with what, with what he called Helter Skelter, taken from the Beatles song of the same name. Manson told his followers that the White Album was further evidence his theories about the end of the world were correct. And in Helter Skelter, in Manson's verbiage, was the pending race war that would see thousands die, right? That's like the, that, that is the, the proof in the pudding. Paul is dead. Fire is the devil's only friend. Yeah, I guess. Paul McCartney has said you, that... You don't know what I'm talking no, about. No, not at all. Oh, it's uh, Don McLean, right? <laughs> yeah. Paul McCartney has said that Helter Skelter was a metaphor for the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. But okay. Manson interpreted the lyrics to be about the race war. I don't know. So, the problem with this whole thing is that they had to get Manson, but Manson was not even present during the high-profile murder. Right, which is problematic. Problematic to, for, to try to get him convicted, yeah. So here's a clip from the ABC documentary talking about Manson's childhood. Let me guess. His dad used to take out his glass eye and make him stare into the <laughs> oozing backpack of it. No. There's a boy in class Char- Charlie doesn't like. And at recess, a bunch of the girls jump this boy and beat him up. The principal steps in. And the girls say, well, 
Charlie told us to do it. Manson's defense, six years old. It wasn't me. They were doing what they wanted to do. You can't blame me for what other people do. Incidents that took place basically had nothing to do with me personally. So what what does that say to you? Well, he knew what he was doing. He's been doing it since he was six years old or earlier. Six years goddamn old. So creepy. So the Bugliosi used the idea of Helter Skelter to... Because Helter Skelter was written at the murder scene and Manson had an obsession with Helter Skelter. So, quote, Mm -hmm. Helter Skelter being written on the wall was tantamount to Charlie's fingerprints. Ah, okay. So, but still, it's not proof. It's not proof. In during the trial, Manson released an album called Lie in order to raise money for his defense. He reveled in the media attention and during court proceedings, carved an X into his forehead. Some of his female followers copied the act and shaved their heads and sitting outside the sometimes sitting outside the courthouse. He shaved an X into his forehead, not to be confused with the swastika that he's currently wearing on his forehead. No, no. He carved an X into his forehead and the X was gradually modified and turned into a swastika. And he said like, it's because I'm evil, right? I am a symbol of evil and this is this is what a symbol of evil looks like. He has no ideology whatsoever. But he released this album. It's called Lie, the Love and Terror Cult. It was released in March of 1970. It had 13 tracks recorded between 67 and 68, including the original arrangement of Cease to Exist. In an all-music review of Manson's album, his rendition of Cease to Exist was regarded by Theodore Grenier as, quote, one of Manson's signature performances and has, <laughs> and has justifiably invited comparison with Jim Croce and Jose Feliciano. Critic Michael Little considers Manson's version superior to the Beach Boys, having praise especially for Manson's vocals. You expect a tattered, raw, and raggedy voice with touches of lunatic rage, but what you get is a smooth-voiced folk singer. I don't know if I would call it smooth. <laughs> sure. I mean, I don't know why they're reviewing Charles Manson's record either, but you know. So gotta sell papers. Yeah, gotta sell papes. <laughs> On July 25th, 1971, Manson was convicted of first degree murder for directing the deaths of the Tate LaBianca victims. He was sentenced to death, but this was automatically commuted to life in prison after the California Supreme Court invalidated all the death sentences prior to 1972 he was sentenced to life in prison and spent the next four decades behind bars kasabian was granted immunity because she turned into a star witness susan atkins was sentenced to death but her sentence was also commuted to life in prison and she died in 2009 in prison what about leslie leslie is also still in prison i think and Manson died in November of 2017. So this is where we're going to leave the story this week. We're going to do a part two next week because I got interested in famous cult leaders who also oh released records. Murder you. <laughs> I got interested in famous cult leaders who also released records. So I took to Reddit and I asked them next week, their answers. Oh, great. Cannot wait. 
So what do we know about what the song is actually about? Has Manson ever come out and talked about his original meaning? You know, if he's upset about the change in lyrics, what did the lyrics mean to him? Uh, And have the Beach Boys ever spoken about, you know, how do they feel about co-opting this, the message of a murderer? Okay, so let's take the last question first. Because the Beach Boys have been, you know, marred by all this other tragedy. So Brian Wilson basically doesn't talk about it or anything he doesn't really do interviews he was bedridden for the better part of a decade and so now he tours as like brian wilson and smile and will do like all of pet sounds or he'll do like beach boy songs but they i saw i saw brian wilson at the hollywood bowl doing all of pet sounds and he basically has like a backing band that's the new beach boys and they like walk him out to the piano they sit him down he like plays a couple things he sings like not that well and then they 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 show him off stage. It's kind of sad. So he's out. Dennis Wilson, who is the one who stole the song, also out because he's dead. Um, so the Beach Boy, the official Beach Boys, the guy who owns the Beach Boys name is Mike Love. And he's the guy that you saw. You saw them at like Red Rocks, right? Uh, no, the Bank of America Pavilion in Boston. Oh, okay. So you saw them at the Bank of America Pavilion in Boston. And so that's like Mike Loves Beach Boys. And he is the only kind of surviving original Beach Boy that's still like doing anything. And so he is the only one that's talked about it. A A lot of the quotes and stuff have come from his book. And so he's done a handful of interviews with like ABC and NBC and and. Um, like news programs and it seems to this is my own personal reading but it seems to me like every time he's asked about it he kind of like seems like he's making a little bit of stuff up of like i met charlie and he really freaked me out but there's one thing that he always like oh and i never supported charlie i like that was dennis's thing but there's one thing that he always claims super super hard which is that he never knew that the song was taken from Charles Manson. And like they kind of downplay it wasn't a huge one of their hits, right? So they downplay his that that the song even like existed, right? But the lyrics are so creepy and the lyrics are so creepy. And like that's just literally not acknowledged by them at all. No, not not even a little bit. Okay. So the lyrics of Charles Manson's version, which were eventually changed a little bit, were pretty girl, pretty girl, pretty, pretty girl, cease to exist, come and say you love me, give up your world, come on, you can be, I'm your kind, I'm your kind, I can see, you walk on, walk on, I love you, pretty girl, my love is yours, and you can have my world. So, uh, and then he goes on, submission is a gift, give it to your brother, so it seems as though there are there's like a some kind of weird alignment with his his cult's doctrine, his family's doctrine and the lyrics of the song that he's never really spoken about. The only thing that I could find, the only quote is the quote that I played for you, which is he said that he showed Dennis Wilson a bullet because Dennis changed some of the lyrics to his song. So it's he he i think is also kind of an unreliable narrator just because he'll say whatever makes him seem the creepiest and the spookiest he like likes the idea of being the villain you know Mm -hmm. but the beach boys 
have said cease to so this is this is what they changed it to cease to resist come on and say you love me give up your world come on and be with me i'm your kind i'm your kind blah 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 submission is a gift so it's not actually all that different in lyrics it's different in like tone and when asked because only mike love is the one talking he downplays his involvement with this song he downplays charles manson's involvement with the band and his knowledge of it of of any of it so they're all kind of just pointing fingers at each other and the buck stops the buck stops with charlie who is you know cuckoo banana pants right and now dead okay so let's let's break it down what do you think the song is about i mean i i think that there is some overlap with his with his family's doctrine but what is your interpretation of this song yeah, it does seem to be like with um you know, give up your identity, like be submissive to me. Mhm. It seems I mean this might be kind of like hindsight bias or whatever, but it seems like a little creepier than other songs that are in that vein. Like Every Breath You Take by Sting and the Police is like also very creepy, but not I don't quite get the willies as much as I do with this song. Yeah, and who knows if that is... I, I feel like there's an energy when someone is just, like, pure evil. Like, sure. I've been watching um, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, yeah, which is yeah, yeah. about the... The Golden East, State Killer. Yeah, the East Area rapist and killer. And everyone says, like, that when they're in the room with him, even when they didn't know it, they could, like, feel evil present. <laughs> and so that might be happening with this song a little bit. Yeah, I definitely get the, get the heebie-jeebies from this, but also, I think like the kind of the deeper psychological analysis we could do is like, if I can put us in the shoes of of Charles Manson for a second, like maybe he was writing what he thought was a love song, but love to him is submission and giving up your identity. And then he like weaponized that with all of the women that he manipulated. You know what I mean? Yeah, because well, he was just fucked in the head. <laughs> he was fucked in the head, but like, but it's possible that his this wasn't an attempt at manipulation. This saw these song lyrics weren't an attempt at manipulation, but that's just like what he thought love was. Sure, I might be giving him too much credit though. <laughs> yeah, it's all very it's very strange because it sounds so literal and so on the nose of like it sounds so rapey and murdery (laughs) yeah there's one thing i wanted to go out on from charles manson um i i this this is a little too on the nose but still uh another another famous monster in his own right there's a there's a pretty high profile cover of charles manson's by marilyn manson oh wow he did Sick City, which is a different Charles Manson cover. Okay. But we'll go out on Marilyn Manson singing Charles Manson's Sick City. Uh, yeah. This is bad. Anyway. <laughs> this join is us very next bad. Week. Yeah. Stop torturing ourselves. We have a new episode next week. This is that's part two of Cult Leaders Releasing Records. What else do we have for them? Oh, rate and review us on Apple Music. It helps people find us. Podcasts spread through word of mouth. So please, please, please tell your friends if you're enjoying the show. And if you have stuff that you want to 
uh, you have suggestions or weird songs that you want us to talk about, shoot us an email at lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. Great. So until next week, I am saying cease to exist. Cease to exist. Best. 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 My bitch leave me to say goodbye. Might be too late to watch a single city die. Going on the road, yeah, I'm gonna try to say. Sick city, so long, farewell, goodbye, and die.